This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, more like iRobot, am I right? Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review, critique, big idea, whatever show that I need to think of a shorter description for. I am Gepwin, <laughs> I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we watched another classic, I'm making air quotes you can't see because it's audio. <laughs> So, you know, uh, a, a memorable one that people remember episode. <laughs> I think more for the name than anything else. Because yeah. I'd heard of this one, and I kept confusing it with the other Harry Mudd episode. So I think Harry Mudd is just the thing people remember. Yes, uh, I've actually uh, recall seeing, like, the last, ha- like, 20 minutes of this at one point, you know, years and years ago, and I was really confused. Yeah, I think I That's have the I same. I've seen bits and pieces. It's not even one of those ones that you hear the plot of, probably because there is not one. Yeah, it's, there's some things that happen. It's more of a premise. Yeah. This episode is called I Mud. Probably a reference to I Robot, which was um, maybe. There's yeah, a reason I used the, the, uh, the quote from I Claudius last time. You see. Oh, that's true. Yes, so it's maybe a little bit of a mix of the two. Both of those are probably a reference to. Yes. The earlier. Yeah. I'm not <laughs> sure. I should have looked this up. When was I Robot written? Uh, the the 50s, I think. I should have this in my, my notes here somewhere. <laughs> iRobot, uh, including the 1950 collection iRobot. So, 1950. Okay, so iRobot was written first, Aha. but had nothing to do with this or the later movie or anything, basically. Yep. <laughs> it's just a collection of short stories involving robots and uh, occasionally Susan Calvin. Bicentennial Man, that was a good good asimov adaptation probably the only good one i should add that to our list of possible movies for the future good idea it's a it's a kind of a fun movie too yeah it is (laughs) we should make sure to put that in the midst of uh you know episodes we're really not enjoying ourselves (laughs) (laughs) we need a break from this huh well This episode uh, was written by Stephen Candle based on a story originally by Gene Roddenberry with many, many rewrites, a bits of it that weren't used. It's a giant mess of writers, basically. Yes, uh, you know, some credited, some uncredited. We see the return of Roger C. Carmel as Harry Mudd in his second and final appearance on the show. But not the last time we hear about Mud in Star Trek. No, Mud was... Uh, I, he may have... I can't remember if he voiced Mud when they brought him in for the animated series or not. I believe he did. Yeah, so he will play Mud one more time on the animated series for one final appearance with this cast. And then, of course, they brought back Mud for several episodes of Star Trek Discovery more recently. And I was disappointed to find out. I started watching through Discovery, just to her curiosity's sake, and I was very disappointed to find out they used exactly the same dumb trope that they did at the end of this episode to deal with Bud in Star Trek Discovery. Alas. <laughs> Things have not significantly improved in that respect. 
I'm I'm hoping then that they're they're just trying to pay homage to this as opposed to actually wanting to make good use of the trope because it's really really awful. I feel like this is just an area where our society has been blind and not really seen any significant improvement. But we probably should leave that to the end because people have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> Referencing things that they are unaware of. Hooray! <laughs> this episode also stars Richard Tatro as Norman. And I believe this is his last acting credit. Uh, he was in a few things before this, but nothing I heard of, so. That's unfortunate if this ruined his career. Or maybe he retired. <laughs> also, this is the debut of Alice and Ray Andres, who play the Alices. Yes, uh, apparently uh, Gene Roddenberry kind of just saw them on the street. It's like, hey, do you want to be in like a TV show? And like, okay. Yeah, he needed identical twins for this episode, and he was not able to find any. So he saw two identical twins walking down the street and said, hey, you want to be on TV? And they went, who are you, strange man? <laughs> I'm Gene Roddenberry. And they're like, who? The Star Trek guy. Oh, um, I guess TV's pretty cool. <laughs> All right, I, I may have made up some of that. <laughs> <laughs> this story just appears in a random random trivia thing. It may or may not be hypocritical. We have no idea. <laughs> we also have Kay Elliott as Stella Mudd. And, uh, she has a very minor role overall, but one of the ones that's, I guess, the most memorable from this episode? Yes. Qu question mark? This is also one of the two times she has appeared in Star Trek as a whole. Yeah. Not the uh, actress, uh, Stella, the character. Yes. Uh, the uh, yeah, the the actress is, uh, is a number of things. Uh, the things I remember actually existing is Bewitched and The Man from Uncle. But other than that, yeah, pretty minor uh, player overall. Seems like most of the women who wound up on Star Trek were in one of those two things. Yeah. Hmm. yeah well, Bewitched did have a lot of lady actors, just in general. Hmm. Probably because all the witches. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Well, I suppose we should jump in. There's a lot to talk about at the end of this one, even though this episode... I don't know how long the synopsis is going to take, because I had to skip vast sections of this episode for any of it to make sense. It's like, there, there's some things that happen. It's not entirely clear what's, what the hell's going on. I'll give you a little bit of an example here in a minute. We begin on the Enterprise, where McCoy is very suspicious of the new crewman named Norman. That's just because McCoy's a jerk. Basically, that's what Spock says. <laughs> Spock tries to argue with him, but McCoy just says there's something about Norman that rubs him the wrong way. It eventually comes out that Norman's been avoiding like his, his mandatory physical, but that's not where McCoy starts. <laughs> no, it's not. And that's a weird reason to dislike and mistrust someone. We then cut to Norman taking over the ship by throwing crewmen around basically effortlessly, disabling things in engineering, and taking over the navigation systems to change their course and speed with nothing the crew can do to stop him. Yeah, he just like goes in, karate chops a guy, you know, flips some switches, you know, leaves. The guy on the bridge is like freaking out. It's like, what's going on? And like, well, there's something overriding or overrides. And, and then he goes to a different area and he's like, okay, I'm going to go take out the next override. So... And this sort of happens over and over again a few times in a quick succession. This is all before the title sequence, and it's like yes. a really long sequence. After this bit of nonsense, Norman enters the bridge to explain that he is actually an android, not a person. 
and he has rigged the ship to explode if they try to change course or undo anything that he did, and he's taking the ship to a destination that's going to take them a few days to get to, and then he shuts down and just stands there. Well, this is awkward. Um, do we plan to liberate our ship while he just stands there, then? Do we disassemble him? Uh... They decide to do nothing. I guess they... No. <laughs> I guess it makes sense since the ship's going to explode. But also, this is what I mean by skipping things, because this was about 10 minutes of the episode just here. Yes. <laughs> it's all basically action sequence and then the explanation. A few days later, they are getting near their destination. Norman has just been standing there in the way of the turbo lift. People keep yes. almost walking into him. <laughs> it's like, couldn't you just shut down somewhere else, like maybe in a corner or, you know, not in front of the main elevator? <laughs> Norman suddenly wakes up, orders that Spock, McCoy, Uhura, Chekhov, and Kirk all beam down to the planet they just arrived on, or he's going to blow up the ship. Um, I guess we beam down then. The landing party is, on arrival, introduced to several identical women who are introduced as Alice, with various numbers. I'm just going to refer to them as Alice because it doesn't particularly matter which one. Yes, they change out which number they are constantly throughout the episode. And their leader, Mud, who is the sovereign ruler of this planet. Yes, he has apparently taken over. The uh, The robots apparently elected him a leader or something. And uh, Kirk's reaction to him is like, Hey, buddy, you jerk face. What's up? It's been a while. What's going on? You, It's great to see an old familiar face. Also, you're an asshole. There was too much of this back-and-forth bantering to write down, but I did like the chemistry they had in this scene. Yes. It was very antagonistic, but fun. Kirk has some things like, he should be in jail, which I thought is where I left you. Yes. <laughs> and uh, they, they sort of go into a little bit of, uh, it's like, okay, so you escaped or got away, and then you know, what got you in trouble next? <laughs> because Chekhov is new... Kirk gets to explain who Mud is for those of us who missed the first episode where he showed up. <laughs> so that's why Norman wanted Chekhov down the planet. And for anyone who missed our first episode where Mud showed up, Mud is a slaver, con man, general bad person who they encountered earlier on. Didn't care much about his being a slaver, but still arrested him for trying to take over and sell things on the ship. And almost getting them all killed, too. There's a bit of back and forth where Kirk teases him about having been in jail, talks about his activities. The uh, general upshot of this is that Mud reveals he got into some other illegal activity that he shouldn't have after they last met in selling patents that he did not own. He was captured by a planet that only has the death penalty. He managed to escape with a stolen ship, but his ship was damaged in the navigation system, so he managed to fly off into uncharted space where he happened upon a planet filled with androids who were just waiting for someone to give them orders. Oh, that was mildly convenient. Very convenient. He also introduces them to all of his female androids who all look the same, and he's had made about 500 of them, as he says. Yeah, this is, um, are you sure you're not gonna be bored, Mr. Mud, here? You... I know it's a pretty face, but really, 500? Yes. Also, it's interesting to me that they, they did get identical twins to play the two Alices, and then they use some editing techniques to make it look like there's hundreds of them. But these two are some of the least identical-looking identical twins. 
<laughs> you can very obviously tell them apart. So I don't know why they bothered doing that. Yeah, it's close enough, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess it is sort of close enough, but they they don't look the same. Yeah, well, yeah I've known a, a number of uh, identical twins, and some of them look very eerily like I, super identical. Other times, it's like, yeah, you can tell this one is you know different, you know different differences in weight, differences in you know like even uh, you know slightly differences in the face, sort of stuff. All these subtle clues you can sort of pick up, uh, you know, you know pretty easily with with, uh, with some of them, but not all of them. So. Yeah, I guess he didn't get lucky on his selection there. McCoy asks about a weird dark part of the room, which Muds reveals is his fun wife android that he based on the appearance of his real wife and programmed to nag him until he tells her to shut up because that's just such fun and so necessary for the episode. He wants the, the last word in any conversation. And so he, he made a, a, basically a machine to do, let him do that. Yeah. yeah. Moving on. <laughs> so the reason that he brought the crew here is that the androids really, really want to learn about humanity, and he basically ran out of ideas for things for them to do. So he brought a starship here so that maybe the androids would learn from them and let him go. Oh, that's interesting. Um, why didn't you just like send out a message like, hey, like Starfleet people, we got this planet here with a bunch of androids. They want to learn about you. Come on and drop by, man. Because that would be sensible. Yep. <laughs> Star Trek, nothing sensible. Norman and the Alices take the crew to their living area while Norman expositions at them about their creators, who were basically human, except that robots and androids were incredibly common and freed them from every material need. It's also there from Andromeda. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They were killed when their son went supernova, and only several remaining outposts were left, but because they had lost a lot of their species, they just slowly declined over time until the race died out and only the androids were left. And this was uh, ages and ages ago. Yes. Like hundreds of thousands of years. Kirk orders the crew to poke around. Spock believes that there is probably a central control area for the androids, and he's going to go try to find that so that they can maybe take control or some such, but... You know, they're just going to off and explore. But the androids are very, very fine with this, and Spock finds the central control room immediately. Well, Spock's a smart uh, cookie, so, yeah. He questions Norman, but Norman keeps saying he's not programmed to respond to various questions. Yes, um, I, 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 I wouldn't normally you know, bring up, uh, you know, items about the, you know, the costumes here, but Norman really should have worn something other than leggings here. <laughs> Maybe it's just cold. Yes. <laughs> and bringing up costumes, every single android is wearing a little necklace that has a number on it, and when they have to think too hard about something, the necklace flashes to let you know that they are processing. Beep, 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 yeah. It's basically the little little circle thing that you get on your computer when it's doing something strenuous. It does not compute. Oh, um, good. crash, retry, fail. What? <laughs> Meanwhile, Mud is showing new models of Android to Uhura and Kirk. Alice explains to Uhura that they actually have the technology to put human consciousnesses in an Android body, and that would make anyone who has an Android body functionally immortal. Hmm. So what you're saying is we could all become cyborgs and then take over the universe. Neat. Well, they'd be young and pretty forever. Because vanity is the only reason to be uh, needing a robot body. 
<laughs> they all meet up back at the living areas. McCoy appears to have done some also tempting stuff. He talks about a research lab or some such that we didn't get to see. Alice appears with Scotty, throwing him into the room and announcing that this was the last member of the crew that they had to bring down. Mud says that they have removed the entire Enterprise crew and replaced them with androids, making it now his ship. So there is, I guess, two things about this. First off, we don't see any of the other crew other than the ones we've seen down on the planet so far. And the second thing is, why did none of the other crew people that we're not seeing try to track down Kirk and the, the folks here to let them know beforehand, before this point, that something was going down? Yeah, they must have put them somewhere else on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> we just beamed everyone down to the other side of the planet, except for Scotty for some reason. Kirk is now worried that his crew is here because maybe they'll react negatively to having everything they ever wanted. Yep. <laughs> again. This is having me give, giving me flashbacks to uh, some sort of paradise planet we've been on before. This is by my count the third time that he's been worried that his crew will be tempted by happiness. Hmm. Happiness is just such a temptation. They need to suffer. Oh God. Yes, they do. It's such a horrible, horrible problem for him that his crew keeps getting tempted away from him by good living conditions and though, though things. I guess, though I'd argue that compared to the other episodes that sort of you know tackled this idea uh, at this particular exact argument, uh, this one's the less, I guess, muddled by extraneous things. That is true, more or less. Yeah, this one is is not so ambiguous. They do have a like, hey, there is a somewhat significant downside to living here forever, as opposed to the other episodes where there was decidedly not. Yes. You, you could have all the material possessions and things you want, but you can't leave. To reinforce this point, there's an absolutely hilarious scene of Chekhov discovering that he could probably have adult fun times with all the androids. Chekhov, weren't you like macking on a lady a few episodes back? Where is she? Yeah, but she's probably somewhere else. I don't know. She never appears again. Women (laughs) never appear again on this show. She probably got married and dropped out of Starfleet like they say they all do. Scotty's tempted by some sort of machine shop, so basically everyone has had their temptations. Kirk is upset that his crew is being tempted by all this sex and immorality and things and yells at them. You, you lay about, you, you know, no good crew of mine who I need to get out of this situation. He does the good old, it's a gilded cage, and Chekhov goes, yeah, but it's a nice one. Yeah. <laughs> also... While I can see that particular argument of it being a gilded cage, it's a planet. Yep. It's not like you're being confined to like a little room or something. It is an entire planet. That's more than most people see in their entire lifetime. Yep. Yeah, that's a, a planet you can... It's like, okay, you don't like the robots. Okay. You take some basic supplies, have them provide you some, some materials, and you go out and establish your own community somewhere. And then while the robots aren't looking, you go and, like, build a spaceship. (laughs) (laughs) Problem solved. Just takes a little work. He keeps telling Alice that the crew are unhappy, but she doesn't know what unhappy means. And when they try to explain it to her, her little processing light blinks a lot until she leaves. 
This is something that Spock and Kirk find very important. Hmm, apparently they only understand happiness, but not the lack thereof. Um, what? Yeah, that doesn't mean that, yeah. <laughs> Mud is about to leave and keeps gloating about it, but right as he's about to beam up to the ship, the androids say, nope, we're not listening to you anymore. We just used you to get other people here. <laughs> You're not going anywhere. Fooled you. In fact, they have no intention of letting anyone leave because they need to study them in order to understand how humans are dangerous and need to be controlled. So they're going to go out, offer humans free services, which the humans will take, and then make them so dependent on their free services that they will be able to control their aggressive aspects. Hmm. So this is sort of a uh, an invasion, a some sort of... Uh, you know, you know, intervention is sort of implementation of an agenda on a unsuspected galaxy. Yeah, it's a particularly crummy plan. Yeah. <laughs> Kirk so, doesn't like this at all and hatches a plan to escape, which involves knocking Mud unconscious. Well, I guess he deserves it. So. <laughs> Kirk tells Alice that Mud needs medical attention. And they are about to get him to the ship, but then Uhura betrays them oh, and no. says that they knocked him out on purpose. She wants her, her android body because she wants to be young and beautiful forever. Yeah, until Alice leaves and everyone goes, yay, good job on that ruse, Uhura. I think they bought it. Yeah, because uh, there's some logic here that they figured that the robots would expect them to try something. And so they need to try something to get them to not suspect that they're going to try something. <laughs> Yeah, but the thing that they try is so... They, they didn't need to do this, and I don't understand why they did. Well, I do suspect it kind of gave them some extra time, because uh, Alice is like, all right, good for your good work, Uhura. We're going to go and make sure you have your replacement body ready to go before we leave. So I guess that would take some time. Maybe. They, the only thing that, that was in here, which was pointed out to me, is this does kind of redeem Uhura a little bit. Because earlier they had her all swoony over being immortal and beautiful forever, and this gave her back some actual character outside of vanity. Yes. So that's good. Otherwise, it was completely superfluous to the plot. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know, it, it's it, it does. It, I have. I guess maybe I'm not as enthusiastic about about you know, you know, you know, the, the interpretation there because it almost seems like she's like okay i'm only kind of going with this plot because i'm you know you know kirk kirk's my commanding officer and i really should but i would still kind of like the immortal body thing but eh, i guess i have duty they're now ready to hatch their real escape plan which is basically to act weird until the androids break so it's time for improv theater uh of the street variety yes and this includes them dancing without music spock telling the two identical androids that he loves one and hates the other for no reason he hates the one because she is exactly like the one he loves yep that breaks one of them <laughs> they say some other nonsense phrases and then they do really bad improv in front of norman until he shuts down like, Which oh. I suppose, if you've seen bad improv, you, know. you would also shut down. <laughs> so, so we got an explosive here in my hand that I just pulled out of my shirt, and then we're gonna we're gonna toss it at each other. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I want to be clear here. I'd enjoy 
improv comedy it is something that i think can be done very very well but oh, when right, it is right, right, right. not done well it is done very badly okay here are some things that are happening they're not cohesive or workable at all and the timing is just all off we have defeated the androids but we now must deal with mud well 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 mr mud kirk decides that they are going to leave him here in the care of the androids rather than return him to any sort of penal facility Mud really likes that idea because he gets to stay here and live in luxury. Except they reveal that they've made special androids to take care of him while he's here. It's 500 copies of his nagging wife android. Surprise! Poetic justice. It's just so hilarious that they end the scene on it. And that's the end of the episode. It's their end of episode joke. He's going to get nagged by his wife forever and ever and ever. 500 different identical copies of them. Isn't that wonderful? No. And that was I Mud. Yep. Ugh. It, it had some good bits, but it had some, like, what? <laughs> was was somewhat interesting. Like, we've gotten two, ep- two basically nonsensical episodes in a row at this point. Yes. Uh, and... and uh... The uh, next one doesn't sound that much better. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the next one I could at least uh, think about uh, that one episode of Futurama a little bit more on, I think. But anyway, <laughs> back to this episode. We're not getting to that for a bit. So, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, robots. Robots. And I think the central problem that we have here is that we're getting back into good old Hegel again. Hmm. Hegel time, eh? Because the robot's master plan and the central fear that is posited in this episode is that people are going to become so dependent on the robots as a servant class that they will basically assume all of the power. Hmm. So the, the who is really in charge here now problem. Yeah, which gets us back to the good old Hegel master slave dialectic in which you will have two consciousnesses, one of which is the master consciousness, which is characterized as valuing freedom above life, and the slave consciousness, which is characterized in valuing life above freedom. Each consciousness uh, just falls into that role for those reasons, And the master consciousness would seem to have all of the power in the situation, except they really don't, because through their hard work and actual knowledge gaining, the slave consciousness is going to actually have a better view of the world that will give them power over the master consciousness. Now, in Hegel's view, the end point of this would be that both realize they cannot, in fact, exist without the other, and they will eventually reach an equitable co-equilibrium, which would sort of be an economic equality of each for the other. Each holding a, a, a type of power and an influence over the other. Yes. This, however, is not how unequal power structures work. Yeah, it's a, a very idealized, you know, uh, you know, interpretation where, you know, you know, the, you know it, it, it's sort of endorsing a pattern of life that sort of just pretends that all the problems that come with, you know, a, a power structure, you know, you know, that just sort of pretends those problems are just not going to happen. And it's I, we keep seeing this pop up in Star Trek 
This is about the third time this has happened. It is something that they were worried about at the time with computers becoming more and more of a thing. I think there's two reasons for that. One, before the advent of computers and complex you know, mechanical devices like that, people were still dependent on tools because that is how people function. It is one of our evolutionary advantages that we create tools and therefore become dependent on using those tools for survival. But prior to the computer revolution, we basically understood and could in a pinch recreate all of our tools ourselves through a basic understanding of what they did and how they functioned. Yeah, we don't need a extra mach- uh, level of machinery or two in order to even uh, you know, build the most basic components of this new tool that we need. People would talk about that quite often. Uh, I remember when I was a kid and computerized control of cars started becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, there was a constant complaint that like older cars you could repair yourself, except in the most dire of circumstances. Whereas newer cars, even the smallest thing going wrong, you had to take into an actual mechanic because they had to hook it up to a computer for diagnostic purposes. Now, this is partially true, but there are still plenty of things you can repair yourself. Yeah. Well, of course, none of this is actually true in this kind of sense because you as an individual person would never be able to make all the tools that you need to survive. Correct. Like, okay, I need a new carburetor. Well, I don't know how to make one. I have to go buy one. (laughs) Yeah, because being by yourself as a human is a very, very bad idea. You are never going to be able to independently do all of these things, which is where you get into a lot of the problems that they talk about in these kinds of episodes because they kind of uh, position it as an argument between independence and dependence. But humans by our very nature and evolution, cannot be independent. So what you're saying is that we were the robots the whole time? You know, the <laughs> robots in this era and in later eras probably represent a central fear of capitalism, which is the worker uprising as theorized by Marxist communist theory. So you get a... A, a, a provider class, which is the robots here, that now have a, enough power to rule society as opposed to the, uh, you know, the, the receiver, the exploiter class, a.k.a. the crew and, and mud, uh, who are no longer, you know, who, who think they're in charge, but are no longer so. Yes. See, I got to this this morning. I was reading through the master-slave dialectic, and it had this little note that said, as extended by Marx and Engels, who were kind of the co-creators of communist theory. And they got into this idea, which was wrong, but based on historically, you know, accurate things from the time, which were, of course, wrong and based on a misunderstanding of Western cultures. Which happens. (laughs) But they posited an idea that society is moved through a point that would be called the slave society, in which most of your economic power comes from a slave class, but that is inherently unsustainable 
because you are putting so much work into the slave class, they can only produce so much and they're dehumanized and kind of can't do anything for themselves. So the larger your empire becomes, the less economically viable the slave class making everything is. But then you also can't easily dissolve the slave class because that creates a lot of problems with how you have stigmatized labor. So you now have a, a group of people that you're, you know, everyone you know that of the the proper classes are supposed to look down on, but that they're, they're not enslaved anymore. So what do you do with these folks? They have some of the same rights you do now. Do you keep being a jerk to them because you always have been, or do you you know, you want to uh, you know, do you want to like get over yourself and actually treat them as human beings for once they saw this as the first of the inevitable downfalls of capitalism that they were basically all wrong about there's some very like a lot of modern critiques of marx and engels point this out that their their theories on how capitalism was going to collapse in on itself inevitably were pretty wrong yeah it needs a little bit more help than that yeah (laughs) Well, it still might, but the way they said it would isn't going to happen. But that got to this kind of worker uprising idea, which, of course, was very much in the minds of people who were quite literally trying to fight communism in the 1960s. You know, uh, they look back to the uh, the Russian Revolution and it's like, oh, you you had the the workers rose up and took over. Then we had the Soviet Union thing, and and that's a bad thing. And so we got to... uh, worry about that happening here so uh what strategies do we want to employ in order to uh you know uh, mitigate the risk of this sort of thing and then you get when you hit computers and the fears of automation that hits a particularly odd angle as far as your marxist labor theories go because it's no longer the humans that are going to be rising up against you it's going to be the machines Well, see, if you look at it from a labor perspective, which is how communist theory uh, looks at value uh, as opposed to the kind of price system of value that that more capitalist theories espouse, you have two types of labor value. You have necessary labor and surplus labor. Necessary labor is defined as the amount of labor that an individual has to do in order to sustain themselves. So, you know, growing this much food, finding this much water. Anything that is above that is surplus labor, which can be used to benefit you as an individual. So uh, I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to now uh, use this excess labor to, you know, get some luxuries. I'm going to paint my house or I'm going to hire somebody else to do it for me. Yeah. And then the critique that Marx and Engels had of capitalist societies is that the excess labor of the individual is not being fairly compensated. They can't choose how that excess labor is used. It doesn't entirely benefit them. It only benefits those who are higher on the social scale than they are. Yeah, instead of you know, me being able to pay for that painter now, uh, that money is instead going into the pocket of my boss. And you hit this interesting thing with automation. If you're looking at a purely labor-based economic view, which is a little simplified, uh, an automated machine basically is storing labor because someone makes this machine, it automates a process, but then the machine can only work a certain number of times before it breaks down and you have to repair it again. But if you have a fully autonomous machine, which is what we hit when we look at these Android stories, 
you're no longer storing labor, you have created something that can autonomously create labor. And not only can it autonomously do labor, it does not have necessary labor, nor does it have wants or needs. All it does is create surplus labor, and that surplus labor can only go to others. You know, is this going to be a surplus labor that goes to, to everybody? Well, ideally, but probably not. Yeah. <laughs> but you keep hitting this kind of revolutionary part of this, partially because this is not a concept which the Western capitalist can fold into this structure. Because everyone's worth is assigned to their productivity and labor value in a capitalist system. If you cannot contribute labor to the system, you have no value. But if you don't need anything, if you are only providing labor but require no compensation, you are creating free labor, which a lot of the system is based upon. But if you create too much free labor, then you have taken the labor needs away from others so they no longer have value. And you wind up with a lot of valueless people in your society. Right. And then valueless people who cannot get the things that they need to live because of their lack of value to the system need to go somewhere and will be the basis of your, you know, of your proletariat revolution. Yeah, because uh, you're basically flooding the market with cheap labor uh, that is all, you know, you know, automated and things like that. Uh, in a, in, it's not like, you know, one for one replacement of workers here, but it is, you know, you're going to reduce your number of workers to the guy who makes, you know, sure the robots don't do anything weird. Uh, and then everybody else, well, they're, you don't need to pay them, so they're fired. And so there's a bunch of people that are now unemployed in a certain situation. So you have a mix in this of that where, you know, too much automation is going to remove the need for your cheap, exploitable working class. And then you have to do something with them. Otherwise, they're just sitting around plotting revolution against you. Uh, or that's this is also a concept uh, called the resenouement, which would be a resentment born of societal wrongs. It's just French for resentment. Resumant. Resume. But you also hit. Where was I? Resume. <laughs> yes, resume. And you're folding that in with these, like, androids are kind of anthropomorphized machines that you can imagine would have their own motives that you would have to be wary of because how can you understand their motives if they do not? need and want the same way that you do yeah and yeah especially in the example of this episode these are robots that are made by aliens so that's not like you program them yourself this is not quite an asimov three laws of robotics situation because you don't know what basis uh is their underpinning uh, organization of thought now the, in the real world, yeah. <laughs> you're going to have a little bit more information there <laughs> the dichotomy that they always set up in these episodes however when you are talking about this kind of, you know, slave, slave power, which is just, it, honestly, Hegel used this idea as a justification for enslaving people. Church that was face. the particular reason for this sort of thinking is that we are enslaving people, but the people who we are enslaving are actually the ones with power. So we need to be very careful of them. They did have a particularly 
legitimate fear that the people they were enslaving and treating horribly may resent them and want to do them harm. Oh, that think? was a very legitimate thing to worry about in that structure. Yeah. <laughs> but it's because you shouldn't be doing that. Yes. It's not because, you know, there's, you know, some, you know, nonsense about, you know, the the rightness or wrongness of of, of uh, you know, their their control over you, man. It's because you're being you're you're, you're forcing them to do things for you. And people don't like that. The particular thing that Hegel leaves out is how much of the labor force of the upper ruling master class is utilized in making sure that the slave class is kept there. Mm -hmm. The way that he talks about it, both of them are just running along and it accidentally switches at some point and everybody goes, oopsie. Yeah, it's not like there's like a, you know, enforcement class, you know, of, uh, you know, you know, people with the, you know, the whips that you hire to do all the whipping because you can't be bothered to. Yeah, you have the enforcement class, you have state-sanctioned enforcement. This goes. This is very, very, very structural. Very, 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 very structural. Actually, I would recommend this series I recently have been listening to on a podcast. Called Watchers of Tomorrow? Called... <laughs> yeah, you should listen to that first. But also there's a, series, there's a, a podcast called Scene on Radio, uh, which did a a interesting little like 14 episode series called whiteness where they go into the kind of history and creation of of race and as a modern concept and how white supremacy works ah. their their basic idea for the episode is we are going to define what whiteness is and i i, I guess they they do it pretty well for you yeah pretty well it's not a bad bad little primer to these kinds of concepts I might check that myself. But we want to look at the at the ethical dilemma that this episode and several episodes have given us. They're setting up a dichotomy between being taken care of, having your needs and wants met, and being powerful and independent. They're saying those two things cannot coexist. Seems like a um, a castle built on some sand, but let's go forward. <laughs> well, the problem that I see here is that that is, that is a false dichotomy and that you can still maintain power while other people are seeing to your needs. That's part of the problem we keep hitting societally here. Yeah, it, it, it sort of, it, you know, we already sort of uh, poked at it, but it uh, assumes that this isn't already the case anyway. <laughs> Yes, it does assume that this isn't the case anyway, which I think is the other problem. They are basically saying, Kirk especially keeps saying, by refusing this help, by refusing to be taken care of and allowing these new workers into our existing power structures, the power structure we have makes me independent. Which is basically ridiculous coming from this person who is a mid-level operator in a military power structure. He has an, a, a, a number of powers and independence uh, that you know are very specific, but does not have infinite uh, liberty. But you keep seeing this enforced through the rest of the show, in that Kirk as a leader, his particular individual power that they keep getting to through these episodes is that he continues to refuse 
the power structure. Yep. <laughs> Kirk can get away with things. Yeah, yeah he, he operates independently. He keeps getting away with stuff. He gets to make the final decisions, so he is the powerful independent man. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, the Commodore over here. I'm just going to tell him to, to, to saw it off, and now I'm in charge again. Oh, and these admirals, yeah, they, they can suck it. I'm going to do a thing now. And, oh, there's some rules and regulations I have to follow and orders I have to follow to the letter. Oh, I'm just going to kind of ignore it, and everything will just kind of work out anyway somehow. But you only ever get it with Kirk. And here is the problem. Not every person can be the powerful independent at the same time. Yep. It just can't work. You you can only be a powerful independent if you have a lot of people supporting your power and independence, which is what you get with Kirk and his crew. And the reason that Kirk is always so terrified of the fact that his crew may be folded into other power structures that may benefit them more than him. Mm-hmm. So he freaks out anytime there's a threat to this, uh, this uh, personal power of his, while kind of ignoring... Basically, everyone else's needs and wants. Which is the, yeah, entire basis of this thing. Kirk ignores everyone's needs and wants. There is some, you know, appeals to duty and things like that. It's like, yeah, we have a duty to, to Starfleet and, you know, what about exploring and all these other sort of things? But it's they're sort of put in as excuses of why they should be on his side on this. Well, it's pretty clear what his motivations are, especially given what we've seen so far in the series. You had another particular problem with this episode when you're talking about this whole the slave class is the actual powerful class idea in that they decided to make almost all of the androids women. Yeah. Especially once they started dealing with the nagging wife trope. Ugh, that trope again. I'm going to say that this messaging was not as intentional as the other anti-communist proletariat uprising messaging because they made the mouthpiece android male yeah he he is the the strong leader the strong jawed uh, big big uh, you know awesome pants dude but this is what i found fairly disturbing especially given the fact that uh, i know we haven't really talked about it i don't think you've seen any of star trek discovery yet unless that's changed in the last week or so um, i saw like the pilot episode that's about it yeah, I started watching through that this week, and I got to the episodes where they introduce Mud. I do like the the new Mud. He's a funner character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the second episode where they deal with Mud, they end on him being like taken back to his wife, and he's seen as very, very unhappy about this. Which I do think they're using as a reference to the original series, but it's still basically the same thing. Which means we have not really improved our viewpoints as we come to this kind of marital situation in the last 50 years yeah there's a a an idea that marriage is something you do that you're that is expected but is also inherently terrible especially for the guy uh and that's sort of where the the nagging wife sort of trope really comes into play and you know a part of this it does come from sort of the traditional uh, you know, okay, you're sort of, you know, you know, high school uh, or earlier sweethearts and your parents are like, you should too should get married because you're already kind of, you know, you know, bumping here a little bit. And, uh, you know, and, and so we're going to shotgun wedding you together. And now you're with someone that you might not super be interested in for the rest of your life. 
and you know uh, divorce is still very much taboo and so there's this sort of you know culture of well this is how things are so i got to suffer because you are with someone who's just not compatible with you at all and but it sort of it's expanded into this uh really annoying ridiculous trope where it's always the man who is the one who is suffering and because of some you know horrible horrible wife see al i don't completely disagree with your take on this we're ignoring again the power structure yes that we were <laughs> exactly the same power structure we were just talking about exactly so this, this, this is the, you know, my take there is the very sort of surface level, okay, this kind of comes together here, but, but it, it's very much missing that part. So go, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have exactly the same thing. Women are supposed to have less power than men in this system. It's the system we set up. It was way more prevalent in the 50s and 60s than it is now, though it has still done basically nothing to correct itself in the intervening years essentially there's been some law changes but uh yeah <laughs> and there's still a lot of uh, cultural inertia so the the fear that you have with this is the same fear if you give your wife too much power as the one who has to deal with your feeding and cleaning and taking care of you're going to become so dependent on her that she is going to have the real power so you as the man have to maintain your own power so because you're a lazy bastard you and are kind of a jerk face you have to be more of a jerk face well the <laughs> nagging wife idea so there's there's two things that you hit and i think we can broadly put most of the wife caricatures and ideas and tropes into one of these two categories fairly easily especially in this time period you have the dutiful wife and the nagging wife your, your, your donnery and then your stella mud and the dutiful wife is already knows her place and is basically subservient yeah, she's completely on board with the the, uh, the way the power structure is working here your nagging wife is trying to assert some of her own power but we always see it framed as annoying and wrong and cloying and a character that you're supposed to hate and dislike and the really great thing you get with this is that is almost exclusively used as a justification for abuse and so uh i i will give this episode a little credit in that this is the vision of mud's wife that he has of her which is you know sort of you know you can sort of interpret that as implying that he is just this kind of an asshole and she's probably not actually like this at all but still <laughs> but but still this is more being shown but that's exactly the point like women are the women would never actually be like this it would be the interpretation like her trying to enforce any level of power is going to be talked about and interpreted in this way as a justification for all of the horrible things that he is doing if you actually look at this as the episode sets this up he's created what we have been told is a sentient android that had nothing to do with his previous relationship given it the skin of his wife for the sole purpose of abusing a sentient being uh, he wants a outlet of his uh, uh dislike of someone 
someone who he could uh, you know run roughshod over without any consequences this dislike is considered normal like his abuse of of this person this is no different if he had his actual wife on this planet and he abused her in the same way it would be considered right and just because we've set her up as a dislikable nag so you're right this is his interpretation of his wife's actions but because of the way that the male-female power structure is set up, especially in this time period, his interpretation has to go completely unquestioned. So anything that he does to this person who is the horrible nag is then justified. And in fact, uh, it seems to me that at the end of the episode, when they're you know basically duplicating uh, you know this uh, this uh, caricature uh, for him to, to basically annoy him. You know, it's it's kind of like the show's endorsing this sort of you know, you know, this relationship, this uh, inter- interpretation, which is kind of scummy. Yeah, because this is his torturous, deserved punishment is to be nagged forever, which of course is the worst fate that a man could possibly endure. He would be fairly justified, we would say, in doing anything that he could to escape this situation, which is framed as torturous. If it comes out later that he basically murdered every single one of these androids on the planet, we would not consider that entirely unjustifiable. In fact, that seems like the inevitable conclusion to what's going to happen here once everybody leaves. So that's why this trope is really, really bad and why it's extra bad when they are putting it in this context where we're already talking about this potential like takeover of the slave classes. Uh. Uh, it's also a slave class that they've just reprogrammed by the way yeah it's one they came in and like did a bunch of bad things too they they took away their autonomy because they disagreed with them wanting to serve them to death we don't want you to have the the uh, the power to uh you know make us be happy so we're going to make it so that you're more subservient to us but what even was the particular like nefarious scheme that they had in mind here. We're going to go and take care of your every need and want so that your need to be aggressive and horrible to each other dies out. Because all of your needs and wants will be fulfilled so you will have no reason to continue to be aggressive towards one another. But that's against uh, uh, human nature? Uh? (laughs) That is what they always say. Like, this is another time when they say that being... horrible to each other is human nature they've they've had explicitly in other episodes where they say that fighting and spousal abuse and all these horrible things are just human nature and the sign of a healthy healthy functioning society so yeah it's almost like they don't want us to become better people they don't want us to be in a more ideal uh, society Of course they don't want us to become better people because Kirk and the crew are already the best people. Trying to change them would be to deprive them of the things that are making them ideal humans. So if we define humans as kind of crappy, everything works out. Well, because the crappiness, as they've said before, is inherently necessary to their growth and development. If all of your needs are taken care of, why are you going to work for a living, which is the worst thing you could possibly do, is not work, right? Because then you're like not contributing to the to the power structure, and, and that's the worst and, thing that could possibly happen. And, and you also have no value, as you know, we already sort of touched on. 
And that's yep, just it removes worst. your value because we only define your value by your labor potential. See, it all comes back to to that. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a it's a, a, a network of conceits, lies, and deceptions that uh, drives a certain uh, worldview here that is very very resistant to any alternatives. It's 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 well well preserved to be self consistent and self defending. And, uh, you know, the, this sort of story and these sort of tropes being put on display here are part of that self-defense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just so we don't completely ignore it, we do have a big old stamp of women as property over this entire thing. Oh, yes. Especially being used in a, like, in a sexual way, explicitly stated to be used in, ex- in a sexual way. They they had an opportunity to basically contrast mud with the crew, with you know it's like oh you made so many lady robots, seriously dude come on, but they didn't really go that route. They're sort of like oh 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 that's that's cute man, but we got this other stuff we're actually going to worry about as opposed to like point out the obvious how 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 squeaky this is. It's really too bad that they didn't go this particular direction with it though because since since having you know sexy robots around was one of the main things they said was going to tempt the crew uh they had to make it so uhura was tempted by immortality and for, and eternal beauty but in the scene where they're showing her the other android bodies the way she's swooning around makes it look like she's just really into them well you know her can be buying you know well i not in the 60s I, I'm gonna head cannon it, man. <laughs> I just was like, they're not. I know they're not going there because there's no way they'd have that in this era. But like, it's too bad that they don't go there. Now I'm gonna have to think about everything in, in, in different terms going forward as far as your heart goes, though. I got to do fan theory. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> do you want? Do you want to talk about uh, Asimov robot laws? Sure, that so- would have been a good idea. So, uh, it, you know, so uh, the, the the big question is, you know, uh, you know, I'm asking you, Gepwin, uh, do these robots do they follow some form of the three laws of robotics? The first law, for those who are unaware, is a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Come to harm. Second law, a robot must obey the orders given by a human uh, being, except when such orders would conflict with the first law. So you can't tell a robot to go murder somebody. The uh, third law is a robot must protect its own uh, self, its own existence, uh, as long as that uh, protection does not conflict with the first or second law. So it will try to keep itself alive unless you order it to, like, get you a drink of water that requires it to destroy itself for some reason. Yeah, they they do, they violate the second law fairly often, but yes. I don't see any particular reason that they couldn't be some version of a Asimov robot. And the... Uh, they directly disobey orders, but they don't do anything to harm humans. Well, I'd say that they're uh, perhaps leading too too heavily on the first law, because uh, they seem to be under the impression that all these things that they're trying to do are for uh, the humanity's benefit. That uh, you know they they sort of coach it in the uh, you know we're we're gonna you know, you're so aggressive and you know we're gonna need to stop that, but you know in sort of a we're doing this for your own good, man, sort of stuff. So it's you know, almost a zero with law sort of interpretation. Yeah, though that's a really crummy one. 
Yeah. <laughs> the the amount of nuance that you have to have, like like you can't have that in an Asimov style robot. And it's a really silly it's a really silly logic way of looking at these things that, you know, you just have to harm someone for their own good because they don't know that you're doing it for their own good kind of way of thinking which is just silly and also in the asimov stories shows that breaks the robot yeah <laughs> if they have to harm someone in order to prevent them from being harmed they just explode like, oh no i'm good I, I can't deal with this um uh, th that may have been a less goofy ass uh, version to uh uh you know try to shut down the uh, the robots in the episode of okay you're trying to protect us so we're going to set up situations where in order to protect us you have to destroy yourselves or shut yourselves down yeah um, that would have been better yeah that would, that would have been much the, more interesting the way that they always deal with logic in these shows when they are, have to deal with this like we need to logically confuse a robot the way the robots interact with the world has to be so absurdly literal they take it to this literal extreme where it's like, I can't hear music, but you say there is music. That's a logical contradiction. Oh, no, no, it's not. Yeah, it's almost <laughs> like I can't believe you lie to me. <laughs> yeah, these robots don't understand lying or paraphrasing or anything that is 100% not literal. They can't understand, which means they wouldn't be able to interact with humans at all. Nope. <laughs> so, uh... You know, that if they're unable to interact with humans, they're you know then inher inherently kind of uh, unable to uh, you know follow the second law because it's like oh humans ordered me to do things I just don't understand them oh no. And just while we're doing the law stuff, anyone who says that him threatening to blow up the ship is a violation of the first law, it's not because in Caves of Steel they have the robot Danielle carry around a gun and threaten people with it because he knows that the gun has been physically rendered unable to fire. Yeah, the, the humans might not know that this is the case, but uh, the robot does, so it's all cool. Yeah, the robot knows that the gun can't fire, so as long as he knows that, as long as they knew that there wasn't actually a way for the ship to blow up, threatening that the ship was going to blow up is fine. Yeah. So what you're saying is that, that four days of doing nothing but just sort of flying through space they could have figured out oh maybe there isn't actually a bomb possibly i mean we don't know we have no idea whether these are asimov androids or not yeah i i, I highly suspect they are not they are kind of taking a few ideas but kind of not in a very cohesive fashion people keep calling that one of the asimov things They're like oh what if they think that they have to you know a hurt us in order to defend us and what if they take the logic too far oh my god that no like asimov has stories that directly address this point it's something that you can talk about i think it's a particularly dumb take that's been overdone way too often no. but don't call it asimov because he's very specifically written things that contradict that viewpoint yeah it's a um an attempt to go oh ho but what if but it's not yeah you know, it's not using the actual laws I know I brought this up in a previous episode where we talked about this, but since we did bring up the iRobot, you do have that last story in iRobot where AI machines are basically running the planet. They've created a utopia. It's kind of revealed that humans don't have any say in how their lives go or things are run and the AI intelligences are running the entire show, but no one cares. 
because everyone's happy. Well, this is actually a pretty good situation. Is there any problems with it? Not really. You do hit this thing that everyone keeps ignoring, which is just this idea that we as individuals have a outsized amount of control over our own lives and decision making and things like this in any society. And we just don't like even in in modern society, there's a very particular limit to the things that you can and cannot do. So saying that having all of your needs seen to or taken care of removing the wants from your life is going to somehow remove your ability to be an autonomous person is ridiculous because you aren't one this stems from our very western individualistic ideas which are at odds to the very way societies function as groups of people and have always functioned because humans are inherently social beings yeah uh, many years ago i conceived of the only situation for which you know one could have you know quote you know un, you know t- total freedom as it is you know most often sort of used by uh, you know you know folks you know you know uh, arguing uh, you know that oh we we we're, we're totally free here man uh, and that's for there to only be one person who is immortal no other people no other society you don't have to now worry about uh, you know, keeping up with your own body because it is automatically going to live forever. And so you don't have to worry about the the labors uh, necessary to feed yourself. You don't, you know, you're going to live forever. So you, there's no pressure to continue society or propagate or, you know, reproduce. So you don't need, you know, you know, you just cut out other people. And thus you, you know, cut, also cut out the need for uh, interdependency between people. And only then is there, you know, some... Uh, yeah, pure notion of this unlimited uh, freedom but without that particularly uh, limited uh, situation this yeah it's just not going to happen no that wouldn't actually be a human anymore yeah. either <laughs> especially not as inspired by star trek it's just these this idea only functions if you consider society to be inherently individualistic it's a fun concept but not there's some problems well the main problem you hit a big problem when you have individualism as a central tenet of your ideas because that just doesn't function and it is a way to deal with things like this where you have societal problems you tell individuals that they're responsible for solving them but you can't solve a societal problem as an individual yeah there there is uh, some things that are you know, too big for one person to tackle and but you know, putting the full blame and onus on individuals and then saying, Well, you have the freedom to do this, so you should be able to do it yourself without, you know, worrying about other people, then yeah, you know, it's this is now your responsibility and then nothing gets done. There was a uh there was a story that this somewhat reminds me of that I think had the same kind of inherent problem with scope of viewpoint, which was uh the Discworld novel Making Money, where it's discovered that there is an ancient force of magical golems that they figure out how to control. And they come to the same to a kind of conclusion here that if you have magical golems who are essentially androids for all intents and purposes in this storyline, doing all of the work, you know, no one can make money and your society will collapse. 
and they accept that and they do a bunch of stuff to get around it and both of these have completely ignored the idea that what you could do is completely restructure your society to eliminate the need of individuals to do the labor that you no longer need individuals to do but that's of course so outside of the scope of thinking that is offered up by these things you have to maintain the existing structure all of these stories are about maintaining an existing structure because the existing structure must be good so 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 you know the structure that no longer by you know, you know by every logic and you know new you know element that gets added to it is just not going to work anymore has to continue to work because we say so yeah it's just basically the structure that we have is good and right and proper and the only one that we should ever think of and anything that is a threat to that structure either has to be incorporated into it in a useful way or destroyed hmm. Seems like a um, setting things up for an evolutionary dead end of societies. Well, a little bit, except it does keep incorporating and mutating. So it's not an evolutionary dead end. It can alter but, itself but, to maintain it's not itself. It's supposed to change. Everything's supposed to be, remain the same forever, man. And <laughs> any change in society, oh, it's just your imagination. It only changes as far as it needs to incorporate new new ideas and things. That was the major critique of Marxist communist theory that I was reading recently, as he did not foresee the ability of capitalism to change to adapt to new circumstance. It definitely mutates, though people like to pretend it doesn't. I feel like we've been going on about Marxist theory for a while, so do we have any other angles, or should we move on to game so, show? Should we just get on with the revolution? I mean, uh, the game show. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing, though, right? <laughs> yes. It's time for the galaxy's favorite revolution Woo! game show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the game show portion of the show. We've tallied up all the points, and our contestants are ready to figure out what they want, if anything. Our first award is the Everybody Loves Robots Award, which goes to all our new robot overlords from Andromeda for, well, being robots and androids and all those fun things. What do they win, Kaplan? They win the Fun Pun Name Award. We've talked about robots too often, so I've run out of things, but the androids from Andromeda is just fun. That is true. <laughs> androids, everybody come dance. Droids. Anyway, our second award is the Talk It to Death Award, which goes to our crew members, uh, Kirk and Company, for uh, their use of mix of logical paradoxes, community theater, mime, and generally being foolish people. What do they win, Gepwin? The crew wins yes-anding themselves to oblivion. Hmm. Well... Guess that's it for them. <laughs> Our third award is the Fake Paradise Prison, which goes to Norman for aiming to put everyone in captivity to live out their days in luxury, cared for, and well, you know, whether they like it or not, you know, because that's bad, apparently. What do they win, Gapwood? <laughs> they win some weird masculine individualistic ideas that were damaging in the 1950s, because as... Chekhov said, it's a nice gilded cage. I'm also realizing how having the only Russian character around be okay with being in a gilded cage is also particularly problematic for the themes we were talking about. Indeed. Our uh, final award is Marriage as Suffering for Mud, apparently, for pulling out this tired, dull, and annoying-as-hell trope. That bastard. 
Kaplan, what does this asshole win? Mud wins some quality marriage counseling because this is just stop it. Stop yeah. it. Also, Stella needs to get away because anyone who's framing their wife like that is definitely abusive. Yeah, Stella, you deserve better. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us for this show. I hope everyone enjoys their awards and the androids do get to come and bring us an actual post-scarcity society, not just the one that they keep going on about in Star Trek that doesn't seem to actually exist for anyone, and no one questions these class structures. Fingers crossed. I hope you all enjoyed joining us on this, the galaxy's favorite game show. It's movie time. It is? Yes, we're going to hit our 40th episode next time. And anyone who's uh, not been around for a while, every 10 episodes, we decide to take a break from the series that we are currently working on and take in a one-off movie. Hmm. What kind of movie do you think this one's going to be about? Well, this time it's my turn to pick. And I have been thinking a lot about genetics based on a lot of reading I've been doing in in, uh, psychology and interviews and things. So I was thinking that we should take in the very classic genetic near-future film, Gattaca. Hmm. It's a movie that I very much like myself. I've only ever seen it once. I remember liking it. It's a definite classic. It deals with these themes of whether or not we should perform genetic manipulation because it's going to create an unequal and unfair class structure based on those who can afford genetic manipulation. And uh, all this sort of personal and sociological impacts that all kind of comes together in that sort of question. Ah, So I'm looking forward to taking it in again, especially since my kind of reading and views on genetics as it pertains to behavior have been changing a lot recently. So, uh, you know, a, a, a nature versus nurture sort of question, perhaps. Somewhat, though in an odd way. I seem to remember this movie deals with it fairly well, though I don't think it's perfect. <laughs> yeah, nothing's perfect. Except no. for Kirk, apparently. Yeah, Kirk's perfect. But we have to take a break from Kirk, and we will rejoin him after next week. But next time we will be covering Gattaca, the movie that I forgot to look up when it was. I think it was the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, uh, 90s, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the classic 90s movie Gattaca, next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, ask yourself, ask your mom, ask DMA. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Morris Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. 
Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists.